Welcome everybody to the Faking, Faking Notes, Notes podcast. podcast. Podcast, 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 Woo, baby. We're uh we're we're, we're back at you with essential social skills for musicians. And uh we're going to be hitting a different little segment than we usually hit today um on this. It's not necessarily like about networking or talking to people. What's today's episode about, Trevor? Uh, uh, Wait, are you nervous right now? I'm a little nervous. I prepared for this moment, but you guys already read the title. We're talking about <laughs> stage fright. We've all been there. Yeah. We've prepared. We've got our notes for the show. Mm-hmm. And then your name is called. It's your time to shine. And you bomb. You choke. Your heart feels like it's in your throat. All that, all that work you put in, it feels like you wasted it. You've now got, your grandma is just like, oh, baby, it's okay. You got I 6K of student it. loans. I liked it. <laughs> racking up every second. 100K in student loans. And you're still botching that G major arpeggio that you practice thousands of times. Mm-hmm. So we've all been there. And mm-hmm. stage fright is obviously something everyone will deal with in every field. Whether or not you are physically on a stage dealing with high-pressure situations, uh, depending on where you are in your career, obviously, stakes are different. If you're a pilot or a surgeon, stage fright is very different <laughs> situation mm-hmm. than you're, if you're on the concert hall or you're just performing in a group of friends. But we all have to deal with this, whether you're an Olympic athlete or you're just starting out. So... What is stage fright? What is choking? What is this performance situation? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, you know, Nathan Chan once said on our podcast, you know, the thing that brings in those fulfillment is executing upon a vision that he had to his satisfaction, right? And I think stage fright comes from, your desire to do just that, the stakes being too high in your mind, and then you're failing achieving that. You know, you had this idea of how you wanted it to go, and you don't achieve it. And you do it because you're holding yourself to this expectation. And uh, I think that, you know, personally for me, uh, I've struggled profoundly with it so it's something that i love talking about because i did overcome it but it took it took a minute you know so some of the things we want to talk about is obviously how do we prepare how do we prevent it what to expect what to do when it's occurring what to do in the moment when the stage fright is happening when you're in those high pressure situations and then how do you actually react when something goes wrong. So I think we've all felt it where something just simply doesn't go according to plan. Mm. That happens all the time in music. Uh, so let's, let's start with a few little stories if we could. Yeah. Do we want to, do we want to bring producer Daniel in here to tell a little bit about Oh, I'm it? here. I'm yeah, here. You want, you want to tell a little, can you bring us back to a moment when you like had stage try to performance anxiety like crippled you never oh okay. <laughs> man i mean it, it all started back to my 
first year of undergrad mm. and studio class. Mm. So um, my studio in my undergrad was very small, especially in the first year. We had six people. Oh, man. Mm. And my teacher, her name's Yi Sung Kim. She's the cellist of the Borromeo String Quartet. Um, she, like, was is probably the busiest person ever. You know, I'm talking, like, 200 concerts a year. But she still made the time to schedule a studio class every week in my first year. And uh, on top of that, because the studio was so small all of us had to perform. It had to be something, mm-hmm. right? It did, didn't matter if it was a three minute etude or if it was a whole concerto, you were playing. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, not only would we have to play for each other, but we were required to give comments mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like in a studio class, you know, for all the listeners out there, you're probably like, oh, I don't want to say anything, you know, like I'll just sit in the corner and be quiet. Nope. Couldn't do that. <laughs> Couldn't do that. Right. There's no running away. So it was like nervous. It was like nerve city, like every single week. But because of that, I was able to really develop my performance chops because I think of it as like a muscle, really, like uh, just trying to like um, maintain your composure while performing. You know what I mean? It's a muscle. You have to develop it. And the thing is, in the practice room, um, it's too comfortable when you're by yourself. You know what I mean? And there's no way to really replicate that environment. You know, there are some ways that, uh, that you can do to get you closer, but it's not the actual... Uh, how your mind is feeling on the day of an audition or on the day of a concert, you know? So you gotta, you gotta practice. You gotta practice that, you know, it's, it's scary to play for people, but I highly uh, recommend that you guys do it. Come to our studio classes. Yeah. Discord Discord. Discord studio classes. Yeah. 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 And then then I'll make everyone say something. Say a comment. Yeah. It's important. Maybe yeah, we should call it exactly. that. I think we've yeah, like referred to it like recital. It should be it should be studio, studio class. class. I want to be, because like that brings up a bunch of interesting points. I want to kind of go around the room quickly with our stories and then yeah. refer back to them. So, Drew, any stand out in your mind? Oh yeah, man. You know, it happened in undergrad as well for me. Um, and I think you know, undergrad is where you like put your first foot in and and you're like, okay, this is kind of what I'm going to be doing forever, you know, as like a performer, like uh, I'm a performance major, so I need to be performing. And, you know, I had mistakenly thought that like, since I had already been playing for 10 years that I was fine, that I could do it. But when I was, you know, a sophomore, in undergraduate studies, I almost quit because every time we had like a center recital or there was like a studio class, I would have memory slips. I would fall apart. Uh, I would kind of get back together, but I couldn't get through a performance. I also would get really tight and kind of like hurt myself 
Hmm. Like I, I wouldn't be able to vibrato. Like I would have like a lot of pain and stuff. And so, which is a lot of problems that happen. And I, I was talking to Robert McDuffie um, after a particularly bad, like student, like center studio class or whatever. And um, he was like, you know, it's just going to happen. He talked about a story where he played a Bach partita. I think it was maybe G minor. It's the part where you roll the go. So dramatic. Yeah. Yep. And he, he told a story where he was doing that for a master class and, uh, he just repeated that. He repeated that chord like seven times. That that first like phrase like seven times, because he didn't remember what came next. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so him like telling me that story and telling me that memory slips are just like part of the journey, and that I shouldn't give up, and I just need more reps. That's what he told me. He was like, "You just need to keep getting up there and doing it. You know, failing." I say, but everybody's judging me. And he was like, you know what? If people are judging you for where you are right now and they're not seeing you for where you're going to be, like those are the types of people that you don't want in your life anyway. So Mm -hmm. why would you Mm -hmm. ever care about what they think? They're not going to be, they're not going to add value to your life. So, yes, you know, so I was that just like the combination of like, like I'm telling you, I would get up and I would be ready. I would practice ad nauseum, six hours, seven hours every day before that performance or whatever. And then I would know it cold. I would be able to like, you know, roll out of bed and play. And then I would get up in front of people and just not even know what to do next. I would like get to a point and then I I would have one mistake and that mistake would cascade and then would make another mistake I'd never made. And then I would get to a point where I just would be blanking on entire measures of what to do. And so uh, I just want you to know if you're experiencing that stuff right now, like you are not alone. What about you, In fact, you have, you have anything? If if we're gonna, we could have a, a forty part series if we're gonna list off all my uh, failures and anxieties. But I want I want to tell a little bit of, uh, of a story. So I listened to a great episode, uh, Hidden Brain, uh, NPR's podcast, just episode called Stage Fright, and they opened up with an example that I think directly relates to your both of your stories about getting off the game plan, which is what happened when we have that the expectation of how it's going to go and it's not going that way. And so it opens up with the story. Uh, I can't remember her name, but she was the front runner, uh, Olympic swimmer. She's going into the 2012 Olympics expected to win gold. Uh, she had gotten bronze or silvers in the 2008 Olympics. She had just set the world record one month before she's hitting her stride and she gets up on the podium or whatever they call it before they're about to dive in. <laughs> uh, she's going to get the po- – she, she won't get on the podium later. That's the, the plot twist. But um, <laughs> so she, she gets up on, on the, the stand mm-hmm. and you can hear the story of the announcers. She jumps in and like, ah, she's off to a little bit of a slower start. 
and she, she's swimming, but she catches up to that world record line. You know how you can watch the line and it shows you she's still at pace. Her chest is at the world record line. She made up for it. She's crushing it. She comes in sixth place. And so everyone's mortified. This was a shoe in. She was going to break the world record, not just the Olympic record at the Olympics. And she doesn't live up to expectations. And people wonder how, you know, how did this happen? And so then we hear in an interview later is that she thought she had false started, which is a disqualification. She thought she had jumped a little early. And so in her mind, while she's swimming, she's off her game plan. She's thinking about, wait, was that too soon? Did I hesitate? Did I get disqualified? And so she swims faster on her first lap than planned. So then she burns out and runs out of gas on the later laps and comes in sixth place. And so here's someone at the peak of their field, literally the best in the world, stage fright, choking, not being able to handle that high pressure situation. And a big part of that is simply getting off the game plan, getting off the rhythm. Your mind wanders. And we see it all the time in other sports, in music, all the time when one thing kind of goes wrong. You're on the 18th hole, you're leading, it's the Masters, and you start to think about, well, how is my swing? Uh-oh, I wound up in the rough, but I'm still two shots ahead. And then they hit it in the water. And then they <laughs> try to hit it out of the water. And <laughs> then they go in there, and next thing you know, they blow the lead, they lose in the tiebreaker, and they're forever known in history as a, ch a choker, like a historic choker. failure. And we can always feel that too, right? And then the problem is we start thinking that other people are watching us thinking we're chokers too and like them being disappointed because we've all sat there and realized like, uh-oh, the self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's just something we all have to overcome. Uh, and it's difficult, the spiral. I think I'm, I'm a master of the spiral down where I fulfill the prophecy of failure. Have you, do you have any like success stories getting out of that? or overcoming a spiral or preventing a spiral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, part of it, you know, it's, it, I learned it in chamber and orchestra. Hmm. Cause you know, sometimes shit don't go right, you know, and everybody knows it. And you look at your colleagues and everybody's got a <laughs> panic look on their face. The conductor is wiping their forehead with perspiration and then just they kind of shrug and they're like, well, we're here. <laughs> and, uh, what are we going to do about it? Right. And so in those moments, it's about the communication, right, with each mm. other. It's, it's like looking up from the music, looking at each other's bows and getting back on track. And so, like, I think that for me, when things go wrong. Honestly, at this point in my career, I love those moments. Mm, those moments yeah. are interesting. Like, like Daniel, <laughs> we can talk about this, like, because we played on ships. Like, yeah. You, you will have been playing Bernstein to Buble for, like, the <laughs> 60th time, right? Good. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, the pianist comes in a measure early, and you're all looking at each other, giggling. Yeah. Yeah, the audience likes it because they're like, "Oh wait, something's going on." Like, yep, 
Yep, exactly. Oh, and then you, there's this catharsis of like, oh, we're we, we're off the road, and then you're yeah. like, you get back on the road, and yeah. you get closer as a group. Like yeah. you get, you, you, you feel like you have to get through some adversity together, and the same thing happens like when you're playing solo. Like if you can find the beauty in the imperfection, and yeah laugh it off instead of spiraling in your head i just laugh it off i'm like wow my fingers just didn't do it this time wow that's yep. interesting yep. if you can just kind of be look at it giggle wow that was interesting and then move on like you'll be okay the problem is is like if you have that mistake happen and then you have that mental spiral of like oh if this went wrong what else is gonna go wrong that's mm -hmm. the wrong way to think about it and i think that's the that's the key to reprogramming. Like if something goes wrong, don't think what else. Think like, huh, that was silly. And yeah. then letting it go. Exactly. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's all about having fun. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is something that Drew and I always talk about, you know, playing with you. You know, you remember that little inside joke that we have? Are you having fun? Are you having fun? Yeah. Are you? No, no. Are you having fun? You know? I, I, I don't know, man. Are you having fun? Yeah. Well, you know, like, it, but uh, in all seriousness, it can't be more true, really, mm -hmm. because, you know, yeah, maybe you're in a in a concert hall in front of like 500 people, you know, but at the end of the day, you're still playing Mozart. You're still playing this music that you love so much. You know what I mean? So just have fun. You know, I remember I remember I used to play a lot of sports back in the day. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys played sports, but oh, you remember like what what your coaches would always say, like right before a game, they'll tell you the game plan and then they'll be like, have fun, guys. The most yeah. important thing, have fun. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like thinking about it the other day. It was basically them telling us to not to not think too much. If you make a mistake, whatever, you know, get back on track, have fun. It's trusting your training. And that's essentially what a big part of having fun is, is balancing that those mental gymnastics of what is going on in your mind in the moment. We can have a whole other episode about the flow state. Everyone likes trying to achieve the flow where you're just going in there. Time is flying by and you can't really remember it. And a great example of that flow state are athlete interviews after a game. It's not that they're dumb, <laughs> like they have to retain so much information, but when they get interviewed, it's, I'd like to thank my mom, I'd like to thank the coach. And they're like, so how did you feel about this play? And they like, they like, don't really remember it. They kind of seem like out of it. And it's because they are in somewhat of an out-of-body experience. Like they don't even necessarily remember it. They were in that flow state and that they're going to have to process it later they were at that peak performance and they just went Th their body their subconscious was reacting before even their mind could they do these studies of you know what's the difference between a professional tennis player and an amateur tennis player i mean obviously there's a lot of differences but one of the key things is they studied how quickly could someone react to which way the serve was going how fast was it and which part of the box was and for us, this is kind of inner game of tennis. You know, I'd have to see them throw the ball up. I have to see them hit it. I need to see the ball traveling in the air in an approximate direction for me to react and run and get it. Professional tennis players can, can sense and react 
before, before the ball is even made contact with. They know which way it's going, and they're already in the right position. It's, and why? It's not like they've you know got some like heightened brain or whatever. It's that they've seen it so many times and that they've subconsciously trained it that they're not thinking, oh, I need to react to the ball. That's not what they're thinking. It is it is automatic, and that's something Drew talks a lot about, and I think applies directly to your story, Daniel, that we've all experienced. It's trusting ourselves in our practice to say, hey, we've done this. And a key thing you could do, like having fun, is literally telling yourself, I've prepared for this. I've done what I've needed to do. I'm going to have a good time. The audience is here. Like they're just trying to listen to music. They don't care about the perfection of this one scale. They care if I give an interesting performance. And then so simply reminding yourself about what you're what you're what you've done to put in this or that you've done it before is one way to kind of snap that spiral instead of thinking all of these negative thoughts or further yep. going down the path. Yeah. You know what's what's fascinating, gentlemen, is the the way your brain works when you do a task enough times your brain creates such strong neuronal connections neural connections right that you don't the path is already set so you don't have to really like think intensively about it that's why we practice right for the listeners out there faking fam when was the last time you got in a car and you actively thought about putting on your seatbelt, or do you just like get in a car and then like somehow your seatbelt's on like you don't think about it right now apply that to playing your instrument right like I'm learning that the more I play my instrument, the more abstractly I can think about music rather than the act of playing. Before, like when I was at Juilliard, I had to read the music. I had to see each of the notes. But since then, I've been reading music for so long now. I can sight read really well. I can I don't even look at individual notes anymore. I look at shapes. I look at intervals. I look at arpeggiation and I'm reading two or three measures ahead of what I'm actively playing in any given moment. And that's kind of like what happens when you do this enough times is this, what Trevor said in tennis, the professionals, they anticipate what is going to happen. It's like chess is like, you're playing four five or six or seven moves ahead of what is going on right now. And so when it comes to performances, I think the more you do it, the harder it will be for you to be in the present moment, which mm. is then a new challenge. So w- what I want to get, because we're about halfway through the episode now, I, let's talk about some tactics, right? Because, you know, we at the Faking Notes podcast, you know, we're trying to give you the playbook of being a 21st century entrepreneurial musician, right? So what are some things that we can do to prepare to maybe uh, not eliminate. You're never going to eliminate anxiety, performance anxiety, and that's not the point. The point is, as Daniel said, is to control it and change the anxiety into excitement. So, Daniel, do you have any tactics that you do Uh, get ready? I mean, it's funny that you say control your – you know, actually, uh, one of my teachers um, said it this way, to embrace the anxiety. Mm Mm-hmm. 
because it's like a part of the experience and it's a part of what makes this idea of live music performance so special, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's never, ever, you're not going to be able to just completely make it disappear, you know? Whenever you hear someone, faking fam, whenever you hear someone say like, oh, I wasn't nervous, they're liars. Yeah. Absolute liars, (laughs) you know? Or, you know, they're just like embarrassed about it. You know, everyone, whether it's us three, whether it's Yo-Yo Ma, whether it's God, we're going to be nervous when performing. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So uh, for me, in terms of tactics, the main thing that I try to think about is how do I replicate the atmosphere and environment of, let's say, an audition room or a concert hall? Now, you know, some simple things would be to, you know, if you can play in that hall, great. If you can play in that concert hall in front of five people, even better, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. because you're replicating that environment. In in addition, something that uh, a teacher of mine actually um, suggested that I do is doing push-ups before playing orchestra excerpts. So I was doing orchestra Mm. auditions and you would, you'd be like, do 20 pushups for me and play Beethoven five second movement. <laughs> and I, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, obviously when you're doing pushups, your heart rate goes up. Right. And it's like kind of almost the same feeling that you feel on the day of an audition, your heart is pumping. You know what I mean? Like everything feels fast. So like trying to like control that, like, and, um, the three of us are probably um, on the same wavelength here, but breathing, mm. breathe. And not only breathe, but do deep, slow breathing. Because fast breathing, actually, from what I understand, it creates tension, mm. you know? But if you're doing slow, deep breaths, what it does is it actually relaxes your body. You and, know what Navy um, SEALs do? Can I can I share this? Yeah, you? yeah, absolutely. This is a, this is something I read from Jim Quick's uh, Limitless book, but it's like phenomenal. And one thing that Navy SEALs do before they do operations is they do the four 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 rule. Okay, you breathe in for four seconds through your nose. This is important: breathing through your nose, not your mouth. Hold it for four seconds. And then um, release it through your nose over the course of four seconds, and it's the control. Because like we can we can inhale really quickly, but inhaling for four seconds means you can you have to control the inhale, and doing it for four seconds, and then releasing for four seconds, and doing that four times. So it's a four 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 rule. You will notice that you are much calmer. You're much more present. And you have more energy and focus to do the thing. It's what so what what I've employed in my life, whenever I get scared, when I'm about to post something on Instagram, when I'm about to record myself to to do something for Instagram or social media, uh, when I'm about to walk on stage, I do the four 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 and I cannot tell you how much how it really truly centers you. And I just wanted to share that. That's Beautiful, because where else do we focus on the breath? Meditation. 
<laughs> like it's it's one of the most like sacred cherished practices. And if we're talking about like worrying about our brain wandering all over the place, what are you thinking about during meditation? Focus on the breath. It's not think about your life. It's not doing all these other things. It's literally like trying to train your mind to focus in on some of the simplest things, to bring it back to a center. If we're talking about, uh, Daniel's great, if we're talking about like embracing and like starting to like being excited about that thrill, those nerves, because again, it's going to always happen. It happens to the best of athletes, the best artists, the best CEOs, world leaders. If you look at photos and images during some of the most peak crises, the Cuba Missile Crisis, um, when they're then the night they're taking down Osama bin Laden, and you look at some of these photos and you hear some of these accounts, these people are calm, and it's because they know, like they've they've been training for these situations, they've been prepared preparing for these moments, and that being too heightened is going to throw them off their decision making game plan. They're about to make say a thumbs up or thumbs down, and it could cause a world war. It could, it could cause all sorts of problems. People's lives are at stake. Others' lives are at stake. And they need to keep a clear mind, even in these situations. You see that with the Navy SEALs. And they're a great example because what allows them to lay down there as a sniper for 26 hours, no food, just to get the shot, or to go in to these horrible, horrible situations and like maintain that training is the training they they do a few things they're preparing them not just to sit in the cold like hey sit in this cold water carry this log and stay awake for 24 hours part of that is to be able to be ready for when those situations occur but it's not really about that specific situation they may never be deployed in a cold water zone who knows i don't know what the navy seals do they haven't called me up. Uh, they're not invading my New York apartment yet. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah. Th- the purpose isn't necessarily just about that situation, but it's to train them to overcome and endure high-pressure situations mm-hmm. so that when it comes, your body is going to be reacting. You're going to be freaking out. And so if you've done it enough and you – you feel that empowerment of overcoming, you see yourself performing, you start to like it. If we go back to the Angela Beaching episode, we're thinking about the death cookies, aka it's the thing you don't want to do. You got to overcome your procrastination, your fear of doing that project. If you eat the death cookie over time and you see what it feels like to accomplish something, to improve a little, you wind up craving the death cookie. You want to craving the obstacles. Oh, I just want some cookies. Like you start to enjoy going out on that stage and running the risk and improvising, not sure if it's going to work out because you know life's going to go on and you've done it successfully before or you failed and it didn't really matter. You start to embrace these things. And so practical things. The, the, the technical side of this is you simply want to reduce the distance between practice and performance, aka, you want to have your practice be you know as similar to the situation as possible. Uh, so, this is a great example 
uh, that you both gave. If you have people in the audience, which is typically what happens at most shows, not all, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I've played for some some yeah. empty seats before. <laughs> played for a couple empty seats, but you got to practice in front of empty chairs. So you know, okay. but like if you know, we've all been there. We're putting on some performance, and then someone we didn't expect walks in there, and it throws us off the game plan. It's apparent. I get most nervous about playing in front of parents and family friends, not musicians, for some reason. Or it, your your teacher walks in, or it's the person at the school you want to get into. It's the head of the string department. Oh, they I thought you up. meant. Like, oh yeah, I thought you said it was a person you wanted to get into. I was like, <laughs> Trevor, that, hello. it's yes. the same thing. It's yes, the same. I've like been there. someone, yeah, someone walks in there, and then suddenly you're thinking about impressing them. You're not thinking about yeah. the notes you're about to play or the yeah. shot you're going to take, and it yeah. throws you off your game plan. So you need to practice. If someone's going to be at that show, it helps to practice in front of them. You see this all the time. It's recital day. You're you're worried that you've, you've read somewhere, okay, like sugar makes you shaky. And so you on your recital day, you cut back a little bit on your sugar. And you put on this suit you, you, didn't, you, you haven't worn in a long time since the last recital. And you go through some weird rituals before the recital, and you're like, this is going to be it. And you walk out there, and you bomb. Why? I did all these better things that are supposed to lead to better performance. It's because you tricked your body. You were out of a routine. Yes, lower sugar would be fine, but your body was freaking out because you didn't. You haven't done that before. You didn't practice in that suit. You didn't realize that your neck being restricted in that tux makes your breathing a little harder. Yes. Like we've all been. And, and so the thing it took me forever to learn is that reducing the distance between the practice and the performance. If you're going to be performing in that tux, the two weeks before that recital, wear a tux. <laughs> in, yeah. In your, wear, the, wear it. Wear it. Like do this. If you're going to do any changes to your diet, do it for a while. Do mock performances. Do all these things we know we should do. That I'll better prepare so that when the day comes, when the moment comes, it's it doesn't feel different. It doesn't feel any more special. Yes. It just feels like a normal day. I love that. Let's give let's let's give a what's your perspective on on visualization? You know, what is its role in preparing for performances uh in your eyes? I'm bad at it. Um, but it's kind of odd just because I'm so far removed from performance, but I'm doing way more public speaking or, or talks about this. And I do visualize it and I try to visualize it through the eyes of the audience. Um, like that's who I'm giving, giving it to. And while it's not as perfect, I will give a good example of where I think it, it's worked. Is when I would do these kind of coaching sessions for getting into Juilliard or getting into grad school. I would literally send people photos of what the rooms look like, like something as simple as that. I would say I would, we would talk about the outfits that they would be wearing to these things. We'd talk about the meals they were going to be having. I essentially wanted them to walk me through the day with images <laughs> of how that day was going to go so that when they walked into that room, it's something as silly as this. Everyone was worried about, oh, like is my music printed out in the best paper? Or, oh, it's this. I'm like, no, you're going to be talking. They're going to see your work, but you can't change your compositions in the room. They're going to be seeing how you react to the situation 
if you're going to be that student that they wanted to work with. We've talked about this in how to music school and how to audition for music school and all these other episodes. But I think a key part of that is all these other stuff, all this other things around there that the, you, if you get familiar with that situation, they walk into Juilliard, they've seen it literally I have photos of those rooms. They walk into there, they're comfortable. They're not, they're not being exposed to as many surprises so that when those changes do happen, they get asked questions they weren't prepared for. They're going to be okay. They're not getting hit with ad, as much adversity. Um, Daniel, do you have any like visualization things that come to mind? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if this answers the question, but like I try to I try to really focus on kind of my body language. So what that means is like, you know, um, in a concert hall or in an audition room, no matter you know, if the guy's like, if the person is sitting right in front of you or like, you know, in a concert on the middle of stage, like, you know, making eye contact, you know, not, not drooping over and not like focusing on your posture, you know, like, um, I think like I watched a, a, a video, like some like FBI, former FBI agent, like, talks talked about like body language and like signs like the signs that uh of certain um postures and stuff like that so like if your shoulders are out your chest is out then like it exudes confidence or something like that and then like when when you're down like this when you're drooped over when your shoulders are caved in and that means that you're like either nervous or you're just kind of like you know you're uh scared or whatnot i try to visualize myself like you know i'm watching me you know what I mean? And so like when I am watching me on stage, then I'm wondering like, you know, am I, am I keeping my head up or my shoulders out? It's hard though. You know, I, I, I've been, I've been doing this for so many years and I, and, and I still can't like do it perfectly, you know? But I, I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, that's it kind does. of what I think. Yeah. Can I can so. I share kind of what I do? Yeah. Um one of the values of meditation, as we said before, is the act of being present, right? But what does being present truly mean? It means taking in all of the sensory data in your surroundings at any given moment and getting used to understanding what that is, right? Like if, as you're sitting here listening to this podcast, do you feel the clothes on every inch of your skin? You know, do you feel, you know, the wiggle of your toes in your shoes? Do you like smell the coffee on your breath? Do you hear the birds outside of your window or the the rush of wind as it moves past your car dashboard right like be as explicit and specific as possible in your experience of this one moment and getting good at doing that and then applying that to your visualization is key so what i do is i'll take five minutes you know, before in the days leading up to performance, is like what you. It's a combination of both of what you guys are saying. Like I'll I'll visualize if I've been to the concert hall before. I'll just visualize myself 
walking out on stage, but not just visualizing it. I'll feel my inch. I'll pretend to feel my instrument in my hand and I'll close my eyes and I'll just see it with my mind's eye. I feel the strings in my palm as I hold it in my left hand. I feel the bow and the resistance of the air as I walk with my bow in my right hand. I hear the click of my shoes on wood as I cross the stage. I feel the heat of the stage lamp on me as it follows me across the stage. I feel the tightness of my dress shirt on my shoulders and the jacket on my back. And then I hear the sounds of the applause as I walk across. And then I feel like the, the I feel my heart beating faster as all of these different these different, you know, stimuli, they kind of indicate that I'm about to do some shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm about to, I'm about to, I have people's attention. So I, in that moment when I'm imagining this, I'm getting nervous, which is good because it's, you're, you're visiting all of these aspects. And then what I do is I literally then go through the performance in my head. I hear myself as I want to hear myself. I feel my fingers moving on the fingerboard perfectly the way I would want them to. I feel the resistance of my bow across the steel strings as I phrase, as I, as I speak, as I sing through my instrument. And I go through the whole performance just like that in my mind's eye. Mm. And then when I when I'm done, if it's like I go one piece at a time, I won't do the whole thing necessarily because it's it's hard to sit down and do that for an hour and without your mind wandering, right? But if you can do one piece every night, you know, just like start over, you know, and just do it a little differently, or just like continue where you left off the last time. Give it a try. Go to Discord. Let us know how it how it worked because I'm telling you, it really changes a lot. A better way to do this and practice this too is in your daily practice. If there's a thing that you're struggling with, like a little passage, stop, put your instrument down, sit down, set a timer for two minutes and just spend two minutes imagining yourself playing it correctly. Start slow. Just imagine your your fingers like, okay, my fingers are loose, doing it everything, doing everything correctly, and 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 really breaking it down in your mind's eye, and then pick it back up after two minutes and try it again. I guarantee you'll do it a little bit better. And this is how you do it. I love that. I want to before we kick into the very last. Uh, section because um, there, there's so many like different methods, but I think what you're kind of seeing here is that you should be enacting some of these. Uh, you just got to try something, having a game plan because you know it's going to happen. So if you're not preparing or not doing any, putting any thought towards towards the stress and the external factors, towards the situation that you're about to perform in, rather than just, oh, I need the notes in the right places or thinking all about music, you're not only going to be performing music. You're going to have stage presence. You're going to worry about the day, 
lunch was late and your schedule's thrown off and you still got this recital and uh, my my suit jacket's a little tight. Like these things are going to happen. And so you just want to be prepared for these or be able to handle high situation or high pressure situations. So I guess like the one of the last things that um I like to do is or I think was it's honestly more fun and brings the fun back into preparing for this is uh, the exposure therapy, the adversity training, the stress training, basically doing something to the extreme. Because then when you're presented with a normal situation, a normal stressor, a normal something that doesn't go right, you're ready. So we talked about wearing the tuxedo. Uh, I, before recitals, wouldn't my probably my best recital would have been the senior recital. And because I did all of these goofy, I had just been reading uh, – you know, Noah's the Bulletproof Musician blog, <laughs> who, and this is just 10 years ago, and reading about all these psychology experiments. And uh, I didn't take his class. I, did you take his class, Drew? Or where? Noah? Noah's, yeah, yeah. His, no, Cody, yeah, his, did no. you take his class? Or, no, uh, like they give examples. Because it's super popular. And basically, it's it's like all of these, like, kind of sports psychology adapted to music. But I think like their final exam was they had to bring some peace and the teachers would throw ping pong balls at them, shine lasers at them and laugh, which is funny because you're at Juilliard and like, there's a, you know, a professor throwing laughing at you. Yeah. Like, like they're, they intentionally do these crazy things for you. And the idea is about overcoming, you know, and like maintaining focus. And because it's so absurd, you're not going to be on a, on a concert hall stage and then going to be hit with lasers, ping pong balls, and someone like coming over and like flipping through your music for you. But if you can keep your cool during that, if someone, you know, coughs really loudly in a silence at a concert, you're going to be great. If your amp doesn't quite work or give you the right sound, you're going to be fine because you People just did clap the insane between thing. Movements. Yeah. So, like, for example, what I would do would be it's almost like working out. I would wear like two or three hoodies. Oh, and so I would get super hot and then like, I would like play with the lights out. And then I'd also, uh, I'd be playing a Stockhausen piece, but I'd have headphones on blasting like Metallica, like something completely unrelated. And so I had to perform my piece while a whole other piece of music is being shot into my ears to see if I could keep my focus. You see NFL teams practice with crowd noise. They bring out speakers because they're like, we're going to go play the Seahawks. We're going to go play the Falcons. It's really loud there. So they wheel out speakers to blast super loud crowd noise. Does that affect the football technique? Not really, but this is what the game's going to be like. You need to be able to hear the call and be able to execute and stay focused while crowds are screaming at you. So if the pros are doing it, I I just think it's more fun to do these insane things. Uh, But there's also like, you know, psychological and uh physiological things you can do about it so our last segment and i want to turn this over to you too is what do we do after the fact we didn't do our best stage fright got the best of us maybe we we know we're not going to win that thing or we just simply let ourselves down what do we do to overcome that and to process that so that will be better suited next time. Drew? It's a great question. Um, I think what you have to do, number one, is let yourself off the hook. 
and recognize that risk is beauty. You know, mm. risk is beautiful. If you took that risk, you should be you should be proud of yourself no matter the outcome because most people in this life would rather not take the risk. So just by you having the revolutionary act of going out there and doing it and risking it all in front of people puts you in rare company. And mm you having the audacity to pursue that which you care most about is an act that should be celebrated is an act of uh, rebellion is an act of defiance to the status quo and is something you should commend yourself for first of all then once you've done that it's important to then have a healthy sense of asking questions as to what you could have done better or maybe how you could have been clearer because there will always be better. Perfect is, is a concept that makes no sense because it doesn't exist. Right. Cause here's the deal. Like it's like what Nathan Chan says, like you could have played perfectly, but then it was dreadfully boring, uninteresting. Mm -hmm. And so, what what then you know maybe you try to find spontaneity maybe you, go, you you've practiced it so much that you decide i don't know where it's going to be i know i've practiced it this way but i'm going to do a different bowing that i've never done before in the moment and i'm going to let inspiration carry me you know there's always a way to create a way to create more spontaneity more risk in your performances and your audience will see that so uh let's just say you had a terrible performance and this is the final thing i'll say you had a terrible performance and you feel really crummy go through step one and just be give yourself credit and then feel bad for as long as you possibly can and then the moment that it lets up let it go right don't keep dragging yourself down it's like like my mom used to always say Try to cry for 10 minutes straight. You can't do it. it. 10 minutes is a lot longer than you think. Like sobbing for 10 minutes. Usually after about three or four <laughs> minutes, you're kind of out of juice. And then, you're just <laughs> and then you're not really like, <sighs> you're not like deep in it. But as soon as you start letting it up, let it carry you and let it go because you have another opportunity to get after it and that that's that's all i gotta say about that yeah. princess elsa you know just yeah. you know, <laughs> speaking words of wisdom you know just let it go you know let yeah. it go um let it go. Uh, drew and i are, are are on the same wavelengths you know um i loved how you said like what could have been better because one of my you, you know one of the things i and i practice this a lot with my students after performances and auditions we go through all the things that were great and the opposite side of that, I never ever say things that were bad because the connotation of that is very negative. So you switch that with things that could have been better. I always want for me and for my students for it to be a learning experience. I don't want it to be 
a, a, a traumatizing experience that will scar you for life. And so something that I always focus on, and um, I struggle with this all the time too, even if you had a terrible performance, what went well? Mm-hmm. Because if you're only thinking about the bad, it's so toxic and it's so demoralizing. And if you, it, it, you know, I lived like that for a very long time and it was, it was hard. My, I, I was depressed, you know, like, and I, I was just thinking to myself, like, why do I feel this way all the time? You know? And it, and it was because I wasn't thinking about the good. Like I was, I was doing good things. It's just, I wasn't acknowledging them, mm-hmm. you know? And so when you have that mindset, when you're thinking about both of those things, even in a terrible performance, you can feel confident in yourself, but at the same time, it'll give you the motivation and the inspiration to really think about what could have been better and how to kind of, um, prevent that going forward. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I have a saying um, with my students, ask yourself these three questions, whether it's when you're practicing a session, uh, a section of music, or like, you know, I think this applies to uh, concerts and auditions as well. Uh, What is the issue? What is causing the issue and how to solve the issue? Okay. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. And so that gives them a very constructive way in terms of how to assess and it creates awareness of themselves, you know? So focus on the good, uh, focus on what could have been better, but also focus on the good as well. I, I think this is something that it's good that this can happen a lot in music. It doesn't always happen, but um, when you look at athletes or look at musicians creatives one of the things we do well and why businesses and other things use us as examples for performance uh, and or creativity is this active review because that often gets lost if something goes well you're just like yes i did it and you move on something goes really bad you don't want to deal with the trauma of how bad it went so you just either stop doing it or it was a failure let's just restart let's read the the idea of being able to review and assess correctly and constructively is that is a radical defiance (laughs) Mm -hmm. is something that's profound uh as drew says and i always need to remind myself that i need to do this if something goes wrong i just feel like a big old piece of shit. And then I just don't want to do it again. Or I mope around for days and just, you know, it clouds the whole week and then I procrastinate more and then just makes the next thing bad. But that's not helpful. What is helpful is actually reviewing and being able to process things. Uh, When you hear about a lot of these in air quotes, the greats, (laughs) whoever they are, world leaders, athletes, CEOs, human rights advocates, so many of them journal. And what is journaling if not just processing it and is. reviewing what your life is? They all do it. When we think of just because I'm on that whole stoic, stoicism kick, the the whole at the fundamental core of that is is Marcus Aurelius's journals. I bet he'd be horrified if he found out we were all reading his little journals. <laughs> My diary. <laughs> like, they were not for anyone else. Here is a world leader dealing with famines, wars betrayal, failures. He's in the middle of battle. And what does he do? He journals. He journals about spending time with his kids, 
oh, the crops weren't doing this here. He journals as a means to have a conversation with himself. It's these small things. And we know what's going on in the world at that time. We know the stakes of his decision. And he's worried about, am I a good person? You know, am I a good father? Like, how can I, how can I be better the next day? Should I be worried about this little thing? Uh, and I, I just think that's a great example of like putting things into action and being able to assess and review. So you're going through, you've got a performance or let's say a class. You go in, you take a test, a math test, and you bomb. So many people who will bomb that class think, I need to drop out. I'm just not good at this. And they're like, I studied for this test. It didn't work. I, maybe I'm not meant for college. Mm -hmm. And that's just a common thing. Maybe I'm not cut out as a musician. I bombed this performance. But then if you stop and really assess, one, you tried. You did it. Like you did a significant portion. That first third, you, sh you, know, you showed up. That second third of the whole equation, you performed. And yeah, you, you might have bombed it. But then it's simply assessing. You go up to the teacher. I studied for this. And then um, this is a hidden brain example. You know, they ask, well, did you do the practice questions in the book? Well, no, you know, I just, I read the chapter and took notes. Okay. Duh. Did you go to a study group? No, no, but I, I just read the, I read the chapter and took notes. Did you, you know, ask your peers like to figure out if they know this or no, no, like the, <laughs> did you like write it? No, no, I just, I just read the, it's just like, it turns out it's not that you're an idiot and that you can't learn and that you're not cut out for college. You just were preparing in the incorrect way. Yep. And unless you're able to kind of do the cry, get up and just simply assess that weight, it's not really like some massive un unachievable flaw that I can't overcome. There are ways I can prepare. I can learn from the last time what went well, what didn't. And even if you just make those little improvements, you will overcome and accomplish great things. And if you make these tiny improvements and then you see them working, that's when that high kicks in. That's when you crave the test. You crave going on stage. You want the game-winning shot in your hand. There's this recent little reel or TikTok or whatever going around, uh, and it's Shaq giving a speech. Almost every reel is now Shaq. But <laughs> he's talking about Michael Jordan. And he, he's quoting some stats and he says, Michael Jordan across his entire career from high school on to the NBA took over 900 game winning shots, no time on the clock ball is in his hand. The fate of that team rests on it out of, we we think of Michael Jordan as, you know, the greatest of all time or one of the greats, definitely, definitely up there. This is, he's Mr. Clutch. He only made like about a, 180 of those. It's not a percent. Yeah. It's like, that's not that great. I mean, we know that's good, but like, do we think about the 700 nope. he missed? No. Nope. We think about the ones he made. He's yep. batting 20% and we consider him the greatest of all time. Mm -hmm. And yep. you bet he wanted that ball in his hands. When the clock was going down, he craved it knowing he's going to miss and lose a majority of those shots. And if 
someone who's considered the greatest of all time can crave these moments and can still fail so much and then want his ball in, in his hands in the next situation, you can too, regardless of whatever the situation is. And that's it, faking fam. That is, those are some steps on how you can overcome your performance anxiety and stage fright. But before we end off this episode, we cap it off. Uh, I just want to shout out our Discord, Discord server, uh, Faking Notes podcast, because look, we practice what we preach and we want to provide a stage for you to do just that, to practice getting nervous in front of strangers and performing. So uh, come join our Discord channel, Discord server, Faking Notes podcast. We uh, hold irregularly but we're trying to make it a regular thing studio classes where people come they share they they play a piece that they've been working on for a month a couple of weeks and they just play it for us we give feedback if they want it we don't have to they ask questions i'm typically there uh as a resident you know masterclass artist i'll i'll like listen you guys play i'll give you some ideas i'll work through some technique with you guys, but it's just a stage for you to get in front of people, get nervous and do your thing. I wanted to give a shout out to Travis and set 2000 performing Vuitton elegy and Schumann's Marken builder, uh, respectively. You guys sounded great. And I love that you guys were vulnerable and, and open and honest and playing with us. So if you want to come and play for us, come play with us. Uh, join the discord uh, server and stay tuned for uh, our next one all right we've mastered stage fright yeah boy we're perfect (laughs) go out there and trust your feelings trust your feelings Uh, (laughs) all right we'll catch you in the next one see see you in the discord Uh, peace out y'all peace